we live in a culture today in which the mind doesn't even need to come into conformity with our humanity. So you can have people that don't identify as human anymore. They identify as a cat, which would be, you know, something akin to uh, uh, what we'd call, or they call themselves a, a furry. Whereas then you have these other people that refer to themselves as Therians, where they identify with a mystical creature, such as a dragon or something like that. And this this is a this is an interesting historical moment that we need to be thinking about. You see, when we've looked in the past at dehumanization, dehumanization was always something that someone did to someone else. But in this cultural moment, dehumanization is something that we are doing to ourselves. Hello and welcome to The Union Podcast. My name is Brian Pugh and I'm co-founder of The Union Movement. Uh, Our vision and mission here is to help everyone find wholeness in sexuality, identity, and relationships with a gospel-centered and holistic approach. And so so we're we're just so glad that you joined us here. If this is the first time you've ever checked out The Union Podcast, welcome. Uh, We so value you and just hope and pray that today's uh, conversation just be life-giving for you and just helpful in your journey to discover God's design for all of these areas. Uh, I'm super excited to introduce our guests here today, but before I do, we are also super excited because we're just always super excited here at the Union um, about an event coming up here in November, on November 17th and 18th. It's our inaugural Young Adult Conference. We are super excited to have this event. Uh, it's going to be a, uh, a conference that's focused on God's design uh, for sexuality and how this intersects with our life as followers of Jesus and how we can live out um, being faithful disciples to him and really set our lives apart for his glory and his and our good um, when it comes to sexuality identity and uh, i know it's going to be so great so right now tickets are are on sale uh, registration right now is 45 dollars, but it will go up on november 1st to 55 dollars. you can visit the union movement.com and uh, just click on the events page there also will be a huge drop down menu there uh, already but if you click on the events page it'll take you to our registration page and we would love to see you there. Feel free to share this with everyone. Uh, if you're between the ages of 18 and 30-ish, 30-ish, we would love to see you there. As I mentioned, I am super excited to have Dr. Andy Steiger joining us here today in episode 80 as we talk about what it means to be human and how Jesus restores our humanity in a dehumanized world. Uh, Andy is a founder and president of Apologetics Canada, and believe it or not, that's not about apologizing for the Christian faith. We talk about that. We talk about what apologetics is all about. Uh, But he is passionately engaging in pressing issues related to our humanity from a Christian perspective. Uh, He's presented in a wide variety of venues from Cambridge University on philosophical issues related to artificial intelligence uh, all the way to the United Nations. Uh, He's spoken some pretty, pretty wild places. He's such a great voice and I love his perspective on a lot of these bigger issues. He is also an author just recently wrote a book called Reclaimed and How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. So if you caught the tagline of the episode, we're going to talk about points out of this book. And it's uh, honestly just such a great conversation. I would totally encourage you to head over to apologeticscanada.com and check out all their amazing resources there, all their books, all their articles. It's absolutely fantastic. But without any ado, here is my conversation with Andy Steiger. Enjoy. All right, Andy Steiger, thank you so much for joining us here on the Union Podcast. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we met recently. Well, I say recently. It's like 
probably by the time this airs is going to be over a year ago, but we were kind of both involved in some peripheral discussions with a, uh, a school that was kind of navigating some ideas around gender and, and, uh, sexuality. And, uh, I think my name came up and you were so kind to invite me out to lunch. That was kind of more of like, uh, who is this guy? <laughs> so, but, uh, I just really appreciated getting to know you, Andy and, uh, your heart, um, really to just make a big deal about Jesus and help people who are far from him, um, really have, uh, a depth of faith and, um, answers to some hard questions. Um, but before we jump into today's, uh, conversation and topic, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you come to faith? How did you come to Christ? And tell us a little bit about your family as well. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, yeah. And by the way, it was, it was funny how we met, but you know, that's often how it goes. Life uh, totally. has these different twists and turns and it's, it's always interesting who you're going to meet along the way. Absolutely. And I, I'd say that's actually probably true of my story in general. Uh, the biggest kind of twists, I guess, for my story began when I was four and my dad left my mom and found myself mm. uh, growing up in a single parent family. Four, I have three sisters, so it was four of us kids and just growing up poor, poor uh, physically, poor emotionally, poor spiritually. I uh, didn't, uh, didn't really have a father figure in my life. Really have never had a father figure in my life. I uh, didn't have, you know, an earthly father or a heavenly father for that matter. So I didn't know God. My mom wasn't a Christian. And so my, my story really begins when my mom, uh, was introduced to Jesus. I have to think about that, by the way, one day in heaven, I look forward to talking with that dear lady who who was willing to share her story with my mom and the impact yeah. that had on her when she was introduced to a depth of meaning and purpose and value that she didn't know existed. So my mom, I, we, I grew up in, uh, I'm an American, I'm an import. For those of you Canadian listeners, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. My, I, I was born in Redding, California. So my mom, after the divorce, my mom moved us kids up to Portland to live next to her sister, to where I grew up. And I heard about this place called Canada and it sounded magical. Thought it was a part of the US that no one talked about. I apologize. <laughs> I, I was one of those Americans. Yeah. Well, it's America's freezer pretty much, right? <laughs> to a lot of people, right? So yeah. Yes. Yeah. America's freezer. Although my friends in Alaska tell me that Alaska is like Canada, but with freedom. So <laughs> <laughs> they're not wrong you know <laughs> they're not wrong <laughs> uh, but these like days these now, days the but... americans really they have they have no business pointing their finger at canadian you know politics or issues they've got they've got plenty Major of their facts. own down there but yeah Major so i heard facts. about this place called canada uh, i heard that you know they had their own currency which was which was new to me and i found out that it wasn't worth as much as our american currency and so this place this place sounded really magical and now yeah, for real. And I thought, hey, I could go to college there and it would be cheaper. So before I knew it, I was packing my car and heading up north. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. And so you mentioned coming up here for college. And one of the things that will come up when I do the official introduction for this episode, but you have a doctorate in theological anthropology. Yeah. So there's one person who's definitely not qualified to be in this conversation and it's not you. So <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about like that journey in 
obviously going to Bible school and then like what really was lit in your heart to pursue a doctorate in this, in that topic specifically? Yeah. So when I came up to um, Canada, I found myself at Trinity Western's campus. There was a theological school there at the time called Northwest. I did my BA in biblical studies, did a, did a minor in psychology uh, at Trinity and that college ended up closing, long story short. So I had to finish off my last couple of classes at, at Columbia Bible College. So thank thank you, Columbia, for doing that for me. Saving the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but coming up to Canada, I uh, you know, not only did I get a BA, but I, I got a wife. So I met my wife at, at school, fell in love with this beautiful girl, Canadian named Nancy. Her and I have been married now for coming up on 23 years. We have two kids. Come uh, on. A 14-year-old and a 15-year-old who's turning 16 soon and will be driving this summer, which... Oh, bro. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. I appreciate that. You're, you're coming up on that quick. <laughs> I am, dude. Yeah. yeah. Her twins are turning 15 in October. So, bro, goes by fast. It, it is wild. It's it's wild and wonderful. Wild and wonderful. I, I love being so a true. dad. And it's absolutely a joy for me getting to be for my kids what I never had, what I wanted mm. uh, a father. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so on the education path, I went into ministry right after doing my BA, by the way. A while into being a pastor, in total, I pastored for 20 years, but uh, a ways into pastoring, I one time asked my pastor to give me some feedback. He's like, Andy, you're a good speaker, but you lack depth. And I think... He, Kind of looking back on it, he probably wishes he hadn't said that because two weeks later I resigned. And oh, <laughs> famous last words. Right. Because not yeah. because I was angry or anything like that, but he was right. I'm like, I do lack right. depth. And I wanted to right. resolve that. So I mm-hmm. applied to go to Biola uh, University to finish uh, or yeah, to finish a master's degree. I'd started it at Act Seminary. And mm-hmm. I finished at Biola. So I so I moved my family down to Los Angeles. We finished off a master's degree down there. And then I came back to Canada and started Apologetics Canada. So when my wife and I left pastoring to finish my master's, I had every intention of going off in the mission field. My My heart has always been for evangelism and for the unreached. And yet, while I was in Los Angeles, I began to hear about the number of young people that were leaving the faith, and my heart was really burdened for them, especially having spent years already at that point in ministry and pastoring, and and now I'm hearing about all these people leaving the faith, and I thought, I felt very convicted to do something about that, particularly in Canada. And while I was in Los Angeles, long story short, I I participated with a ministry called apologetics.com, saw how effective they were, not only in understanding culture, but engaging culture and seeing people come to faith and strengthen in the faith. So in many ways, I saw myself coming back to Canada to start apologetics.com Canada. We ended up dropping the .com and just became Apologetics Canada. Didn't realize till later that it was kind of a grandiose title that we we gave ourselves. <laughs> but Amen. Humble beginnings. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to show up, be confident, right? Especially in 2023, you don't have to be right. You just got to be confident. Yeah. So. Just, just got to be confident. So it's kind of funny because we had a national title, if you will, but we only did work really on the West coast. 
But right. uh, we've been doing Apologize Canada now for 13 years, and it really has become a national organization. Mm-hmm. Staff in Alberta and Ontario, and then uh, most of us are here in British Columbia. And when I came back and started Apologize Canada to to kind of answer your question, needed a little bit more, inf- like, give, I just gave a little bit more history there because it provides the context of me coming back to Canada, starting this organization to reach young people and beginning to realize that I still had more to learn, that I was still lacking some depth if I was really going to be of assistance to this cultural moment and the questions that were being asked. And I, and I realized early on that one of the foundational questions that was being raised and dealt with, uh, it was around the, the, the question of humanity and what is, what does it mean to be human and, and being able to give and understand a theological understanding of our humanity, which I would say in the evangelical church, uh, we have been behind on that. I'd say the Catholics absolutely were ahead of us definitely in this area. They've given a lot more thought to that than we have. And so if that, that area of theology is called theological anthropology or a theology of being human. Mm-hmm. And I saw that I could go to Scotland, to Aberdeen University and do a PhD in this topic. And so with a lot of prayer, uh, I, I did. I've often heard the joke that like when a husband gets any sort of like theological degree that they usually give like uh, a, I don't know, like a participation award to the wife. Like I can only imagine, you know, trying to move the family, Scotland, everything like that, trying to navigate that change. Like Nancy, I know Nancy, I've met her and I've met your family, but she's an incredible lady. And, um, so hats off to you, Nancy. We salute you. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's for real. In celebration of, uh, the finishing of the PhD, it's Scottish tradition to, uh, have a dram of, of, uh, scotch. Uh, oh, really? yeah. So a shot of scotch. And so my wife yeah. and I shared that together. She deserved every bit of that, that shot. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> <I did. laughs> Just need to take that edge off a little bit. I, I should that, say, for sure. I should say though, that we didn't move to Scotland. Uh, I, I would fly there periodically. And, oh, I see. And I had, and so it was, it was a great program because there's a lot of uh, work I had to do in the United States and stuff too, with regards to sure. this topic. Sure. That's awesome, man. Now tell us a little bit about apologetics. I think for some of us, um, we, especially as Canadians, cause we're so great at apologizing. We think that apologetics is just saying sorry for the Christian faith. So what, what is apologetics really? And what is the focus of that, that expression of, of ministry? Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. It, it because the name sounds like apologizing in English, it, it often will get confused and because of that, a lot of people think that our name Apologetics is a terrible name, Apologetics Canada. I've had so many people tell me, Andy, you really got to change the name. But and, and that might be, it might be a terrible name. I don't care. My thing is, I'm <laughs> like, Christians need to be reintroduced to that term. And For part sure. of doing that is actually embracing it in in our name. And that that idea of apologetics goes all the way back to the Bible goes all the way back to the New Testament. 
it's a Greek word. Uh, the word mean the word is uh, apologia, and it means to give an answer or a reason. It's interesting because I was in Greece not that long ago, a couple of years ago. And when I was there, I said, hey, do you know what this word is? You know, apologia? And they're like, of course I do. And they said that we, we still use that word today. And that word has the same meaning today in Greece as it did at the time uh, of the New Testament. And that, you know, that is to give an answer or a reason, specifically as we see it used in the scripture, such as First uh, Peter chapter 3, you know, to give an answer or a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus and, mm-hmm. and to do that with, with gentleness and respect. And so that's what apologetics is. And it is a rich part of the Christian tradition is giving a reason. And you see that with the early church fathers. I mean, take Tertullian, for example, you know, he writes in the year 150, his, you know, his apology, uh, his defense of the Christian faith. And out of that work, by the way, is where we get the, for the first time, the idea of religious liberty or religious freedom. He coined that term and he argued for it as a part of the rationale of the Christian faith is that you should have freedom of religion. And you see all of these different, you know, thinkers, like not just Tertullian, but, you know, you, you know, um, a couple centuries later, you got people like Gregory of Nyssa, who gives one of the first arguments against slavery that we have recorded outside of the Bible. Then you have, uh, then you have other thinkers throughout history that come along again. They're involved in this rich tradition of apologetics. People that might surprise you, like John Locke, wrote a book called "The Reasonableness of God," and and many others. And, you know, this this was a part of the Christian faith. So it's only been recently. I'm saying this, Brian, just because it's only been recently that people are unfamiliar with this word apologetics and yeah. that they think it's apologizing or whatever. It just shows you how ignorant we are. In the past, they would have known immediately what it was because it was a deep part of the Christian, the Christian tradition. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think it's so important because, as you know, you as you mentioned, you know, your time down in LA, hearing about the amount of young people who are leaving the church, um, often based off of like really some questions that, like, hey, if we could just sit down and talk for maybe like 10, 15 minutes you would have some solid answers, yeah. but because we haven't approached some of these topics, some of these deeper issues of what it means to be human, the purpose of life and, and all this different stuff, like some of these, obviously you go into some of the deeper details, they're, they're pretty vast, but like a 10 or 15 minute conversation can solve a lot of these comments or a lot of these questions. I mean, that are causing young people to leave the church. And so I think there's all the more um, necessity for a ministry like, like what you guys are doing. So I, I, and I think you guys model the, that template of humility and reverence. And cause I, I've, I've seen you speak, I've seen you interact and, and jump into topics in a question and answer open forum. And which is not always easy to, to hold the kindness and respect. And you've done that, man. So I so appreciate what you guys are doing. It's, it's so great to, um, kind of be partnering with you guys in, you know, in a way, see, see this relationship build. Can you tell us like, what are, what's the project that you guys are most excited about right now? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) We always have so many projects going on. I mean, as you know, I just got back from Egypt where we were filming uh, a new series with um, 
with our director who's out in Ontario. His name's Wesley Huff. He and I were out there together with filmmaker uh, filming. So this series, Can I Trust the Bible? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this next uh, year or so, we're going to be doing a lot uh, across Canada on Can I Trust the Bible? And that is a, that's a question we hear a lot from young people. A lot of questions about the Bible. How do we get the Bible? Uh, why are some books included? Why are others not included? Like, what what are these Gospels of Thomas or these other, what we, you know, we'd call Gnostic Gospels or texts that come from the Nag Hammadi Library? So we we decided, you know what? Not only are we going to answer those questions, we're going to actually go to where these these different texts were found and explain that more for people. So. Because people might be like, why would you go to Egypt to talk about the Bible? But that's where our earliest manuscripts are found. And that's also where these other uh, documents, these uh, Gnostic documents were found. So we wanted to uh, go there and and kind of show that. So, I mean, we're excited about that. But I'd say, you know, beyond that, I'm just excited about more of the national work that that we've been doing in, uh, across the country. That's awesome. And you guys were brave enough to go there in the middle of summer too. So <laughs> brave or stupid. Uh, there, there's a fine line. There's always a fine line between bravery and stupidity. At least that's what I've experienced. So, oh, so hats off, man. Yes. We, we had 45 degree heat and sandstorms. It was brutal. I was walking. I was, by the way, I was watching a documentary. There's a great documentary right now called like the lost pyramid on netflix if people want to see it it's, oh, it's, it's actually great but it's funny because they're like yeah we only dig for nine months of the year and then when summer comes you know we uh we stop digging and uh and now i know oh th- that, yeah that's why <laughs> yeah because they're not crazy <laughs> that's right well i love to just jump into a little bit of your work in in 2020 you launched a book called reclaimed how jesus restores our humanity in a dehumanized world um now this we could talk for hours and hours about that topic but um there's one story that you tell in the introduction about the zombie walk can you tell us about the zombie walk yeah, you know, the zombie walk actually, so for those who are unaware, for many years, uh, I don't believe the zombie walk happens any longer, but over a decade, they were doing zombie walks in Vancouver. And that's what one was one of the catalysts that got me thinking about this topic of our humanity is, you know, why are zombies so popular? And I used that in an evangelistic way. I held a coffee shop talk down in Vancouver uh, one year after a zombie walk where it was called taming zombies and other evidence for the soul. And so I, I use zombies as an art, as a way to talk about whether or not the soul exists and as a way to talk about, does God exist? Wow. And there were a lot of zombie walkers that attended that talk and were, were impacted by it. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe there's something more here. And that was one of the things that, that was kind of a catalyst again, that got me thinking, okay, this topic of our humanity is a big one. And I think that this is really highlighted in that one year I was brave enough or stupid enough to go down. Remember, fine line, fine line. (laughs) To go down to Vancouver for the the zombie walk. And I had an intern with me and I convinced him to come along. And we put on these uh, t-shirts that instead of saying Subway eat fresh, they said zombies eat flesh. Uh, so we're wearing these t-shirts and we're going along interviewing 
and running from zombies. Uh, some great, great footage out there of this, but I'll never forget this. And I wrote it in the book because when I'm interviewing these zombies, I asked this one zombie walker, I said, can you define for me what a zombie is? And he just, you know, gave me this explanation that you and I would often be familiar with, you know, of, of some, you know, uh, soulless, uh, you know, undead person sort of idea. Yeah. And, and all of the zombie walkers I asked, they could all give me a definition of what is a zombie. But then I would immediately after I would ask, well, can you give me a definition of what is a human? And it was hilarious seeing these zombie walkers with just this zombie like expression on their face as they're trying to, you know, think through how to define not only what is a human, but I mean, what they are. Like it's, it's, it's ironic that we've given more thought to our fantasies than we have to our realities. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's so true. So true. And just for everybody who's listening, I don't think we gave it like a pref, like a preface of this. The zombie walk is where people dress up like zombies and, and paint themselves to be like zombies. So should have prefaced that a little bit better, but yeah, they walk, by the way, they walk from the library in Vancouver down to the water, down to the ocean. Yeah. Oh my goodness, man. What a time to be alive. (laughs) Um, Well, people in Vancouver, by the way, love, love the zombie walk in some ways because uh, Vancouver is kind of like the Hollywood of the North. We have a lot of films that are filmed here. And so it's kind of a place where for some people to try out their, their abilities on makeup and costume design and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah, man, we've put more time into our fantasies than into our realities, man. That's um, going to have to think about that, man. That's that's so on point. Um, you you mentioned in your book, you quote, uh, this is a quote from your book. That I believe that our culture has lost sight of what is human because we've lost sight of God. How do you see like our current cultural moment um, as being blinded to the realities of God? Yeah, man, that's such a big question. How are we blind to the realities of God? Uh, I th- I think there's many ways that we're blind to the realities of God. And I think maybe one of the most common is we've lived in a time for so, so long. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Narnia for me to watch Narnia where it's just this continual winter. Yeah, right. uh, and I'd say there's been a continual winter of living in a culture that has that has undone, if you will, all of the all of the magic or mystique or the maybe a different way is the enchantment of life. So mm-hmm. much so that you you said this earlier, Brian, where you know people don't even talk about the meaning of life anymore. Sort of idea that. Yeah, and I'd say I'd go even further. When you live in a world that is as de-enchanted as ours is, uh, it's become a laughable subject. There is no yeah. meaningful right. life, and it's the bunt of jokes. I mean, if you've watched uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know it's been reduced to a number. It's 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 a it's you know it's a it's a laughable idea, and and. And I think the only reason why that joke even works, you know, I think I, if I remember correctly, 
I can't even remember now. What is it like 54 or something like that? That's the sure. answer to the meaning of life. In other words, it's the, it's nonsense. Right. And I think the only reason that works is because we've lived in a society for so long that has lived under the motto that all that exists is the physical and any true answers of the world must be reduced to physical answers. As one atheist, uh, his name is Alex Rosenberg, says, the physical facts fix all the facts. And, and, and that's the way our society has operated for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I've um, started reading a book by uh, Charles Taylor um, called The Secular Age, and it's kind of blowing my mind, <laughs> to be honest. But he's he's going through all this historical movement towards our, our current cultural time, kind of showing how secularism has become the new religion. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's yes. like the worship of God today is is seen all over the place, but we can't put real, we can't put tangible realities to them or tangible characteristics to who God is. Um, and ultimately in some ways, like we've become God and like, how, how do you see that playing out? Like, and what are the, like, when you look at culture today, what are you seeing as the fruits of that? Like the worship itself, I mean. Yeah. And by, by the way, I should just mention that Charles Taylor, he's a, actually a Canadian philosopher, uh, and his work resonates, uh, with me, uh, in many ways. One in particular is that I did my PhD work in the, in the philosophical theological work of Michael Polanyi and Charles Taylor was deeply influenced by, by Polanyi. So it's probably one of the reasons why uh, I really resonate with, with how Taylor sees things. And I would, Mm -hmm. uh, I would agree. Uh, We, we have seen secularism become uh, a religious worldview in which particularly as it's being played out, I I think it could get played out in different ways, but the way we're seeing it get played out is within the context of extreme individualism. Right. In, in which you're right. We are living in a time in which you and I uh, are, are, are gods. You know, we, mm-hmm. if, if the physical facts fix all the facts, then there, the worldview of secularism is that the God doesn't exist. There is no God. And if, and if God doesn't exist, all you have is you. And mm-hmm. ultimately the most rational thing to do is to do you, you do you, right. Which is the motto yeah. of our day in which yeah. you seek out whatever gives you pleasure. And, and, you know, and we see this in Oprah and various other, you know, modern philosophers, you know, of our day, uh, you know, media, maybe we call it the media philosophers. I don't know where, where it's kind of like, you know, that that's your purpose is you, you doing you and following whatever makes you happy. And that's, that's, that's as deep as we get in our culture. So another quote from your book is dehumanization happens when we see others as less than human, separating people into groups and then stirring up fear as the quint the quintessence of dehumanization. That just jumped off the pages to me when I read that, because to me, it sounds like so much of the what we can see in some ways, the cultural Marxism that's um kind of infiltrating society. Um, and also like intersectionality, where it's just we try to put people into boxes based off of minorities, based off of different experiences and identity. Um, and then we are 
turned on each other uh, in a polarizing culture now. Um, but how do these ideas contribute to de- dehumanization of people when they are sometimes packaged as like for the people ideas and their liberation? So, um, yeah. So how like how does that lead to dehumanization? Yeah, let me let me back up a little bit and take more of a runway at this that would kind of sure. tie in with what we were just talking about because it is complicated in that we're looking at the same idea from two different perspectives and that's not even bringing in the Christian perspective yet. No, that's right. So let's take a look at that. So if we start off with the secular way of looking at this and I was talking about kind of like the de-enchantment of society if you were just to look at it from that perspective, we've had this very dehumanizing ideology that has been an undercurrent of our society for some time that very, very much resonates, by the way, with the zombie kind of mentality that are you all you are is a physical body without a soul or mm-hmm. anything non-physical that you're, uh, you know, it's that bag of chemicals kind of idea. And people really... Sure see it that way because let me just let me just you know highlight how de-enchanted we become i was talking with a young person who had given up on their view of god and remember we made this comment uh, you were talking about this earlier that they've given up on their view of god and and in doing so they've given up on their view of themselves so so let's just see how that dehumanization plays out first so what happens is so i had this young young man who had given up on god and in giving up on God, he had given up on anything non-physical. So, because so if God doesn't exist, why is he not existing? Well, he's not existing because we live in a purely physical world. It is a closed-off universe in which the physical facts fix all the facts. Like that, that's right. how they see the world. But what you have to understand is one thing that I really appreciate about Polanyi. He helped me to appreciate this because uh, mm-hmm. this was the concern he saw all the way back in the 30s and 40s. Is he says, well, you know, I, uh, you know, in many ways, I guess you could kind of see him as this is a kind of a prophet along the lines of of Nietzsche. See, Nietzsche sure. declared the death of God, and right. what Nietzsche's declaring there isn't that we had killed God. He just simply said, if you buy into a purely physical only worldview, then God can't exist in that worldview. Thus, you've killed God. Polanyi mm-hmm. came along and said, if you killed God like that. It's more than just God that's dead. Uh, It's you that's dead also. Like, it's not just God that can't exist. uh, You don't exist. So, so you have like the death of God and then you have the death of humanity. Yeah. And so I was talking with this young man, just so you're wondering, the people are listening is going, what, how can that be? Uh, It is as crazy as it sounds. We live in a culture where there's still many, many people that don't think that they exist. They think that they're having an illusion of existence as these bag of chemicals, as Dawkins would say, right? That we, you know, we dance to our DNA, but correct. Yeah. You know, but that, but that's it. And so I was talking with this one young adult who was talking with me. So here's somebody who'd given up on God and this worldview was shaping the way they viewed themselves. He was talking with me because he was sad that his girlfriend had broken up with him. And, and he was telling me how much he loved her. And I go, well, what do you mean by love? You know? And I go under your worldview, love is just a chemical reaction in your brain. Nothing more. I mean, that's how de-enchanted again, that we become. Yeah. 
And I mean, think about this. I mean, Brian, you've got, uh, by the way, you deserve, you and your wife deserve quite an award. You got five boys, right? Six, six boys. Well, now, yeah. yeah, six boys. We with, got a full van. With, <laughs> that's more than a full van. Well, yeah. yeah. No, that's we got to strap like, one of them to the top, but that's. Yeah, you know, we strap one details. to the top. <laughs> Anybody who has kids, or if you don't have kids, think about your own parents. Would you mm-hmm. honestly reduce your love for them? To a chemical reaction. I mean, that that's insane. But yet that's the kind of world that you and I live in. And as I'm talking with this guy, he was like, Yeah, I do think love is just chemical reactions in the brain. I'm like, then go find a different chemical reaction. But of course right, he didn't want right. to. Why? Because he loved this person. He had he there was a connection there. But again, it was a yeah. connection that he couldn't um fit into his own worldview. And so what he did, and I see this a lot, is he he just cheats on his worldview. He sees yeah. himself as purely physical and only, but he doesn't act as though that's actually the case. Notice the dehumanization at play here. Besides just de-enchanting the world, it's also a very uh, dehumanizing view of yourself. Mm-hmm. I I am physical only kind of way of seeing myself, and then I behave accordingly but yet i can't be consistent within that worldview because it a it doesn't work and b it would be so depressing yeah so i think this is kind of a unique moment cultural moment because we are dehumanizing ourselves now in one way we do that is through secularism but let me give you a different now view of dehumanization and and so you know actually maybe one way of going about this is we could say that secular view the dehumanizing view of ourselves was very much along the lines of Nietzsche, God's Mm -hmm. dead, physical only worldview. We are in a pendulum swing out of that. I meet less and less atheists these days, and I meet more and more people that are into uh, mysticism, uh, that are into new age thinking of various stripes. I'm sure you're encountering this as well. Yeah, for sure. And so that's kind of more the the worldview that we're in. And notice how this gets played out in various ideologies. So take transgender ideology as as an example. Within the trans I, I, you know ideology, you have a person that has an inherent view of dualism. They see themselves as two different things. They see themselves as a physical body, but then they also see themselves as something more than a physical body, that they have a mind, and that their body and that their mind, their view of themselves, their identity, don't always match. Right. Notice that right. is not a secular worldview. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, absolutely. That is not a physical-only worldview. That is a very... Uh, religious view, very mystical view of yourself that that there are two essential aspects of who you are, one physical, one not physical, and the two can be out of sync with each other. Right. And then that that hyper-individualism, right, that extreme individualism comes into play where the mind takes precedent over the physical body. The body mm-hmm. must be brought into line with the person, not the other way around. Right, right. Again, that is not a secular way of viewing the world. No, for sure. But for sure. And I, and I think just even it, it just points to 
Um, because like, well, something we've often said is like, we are integrated beings. Like we are according to the scripture, body, soul, and spirit, you know, like that, that this is how God has designed us. And so it, I, like, as I'm listening to you, I go see like, this is a great opportunity for the case of God. You know what I mean? To say 100%. that like, actually, Hey, there's good news for you. Even though you feel this disconnect, even you feel like these two realities are out of, out of sync. This is a great opportunity for us as people of God to, to share the gospel and to make a case for the existence of God and for really human flourishing in his, in his design. I, I absolutely agree. I think secularism as we've known it as uh, physicalism ha- has really lost traction in our culture mm-hmm. and we're seeing this movement away from it and it is really opening up a lot more opportunity for the gospel. I, I completely agree, but let me just, just highlight the dehumanizing aspect of what happens when we go towards that person or mind, uh, that, that duality that is not connected to the body and that the body must be brought into conformity that also becomes a very dehumanizing worldview in mm. that now the mind becomes the the most important aspect of of yes. your identity and we live in a culture today in which the mind doesn't even need to come into conformity with our humanity so you yeah. can have people that don't identify as human anymore. They identify as a cat, which would be, you know, something akin to uh, uh, what we'd call, or they call themselves a a furry. Whereas Mm -hmm. then you have these other people that refer to themselves as Therians, where they identify with a mystical creature, such as a dragon or something like that. And this, this is a, this is an interesting historical moment that we need to be thinking about you see, mm-hmm. when we've looked in the past at dehumanization, dehumanization was always something that someone did to someone else. But right. in this cultural moment, dehumanization is something that we are doing to ourselves. Wow. Oh, so true. So true. I think even along the lines, like you mentioned, transgender ideology, but just even just... In, just even when it comes to sexual sexuality, um, one of the things that I've just found so impacting in, in reading Carl Truman's book, the rise and triumph of the modern self, which I think you recommended to me actually, um, was how he tracks along how so many of these different ideologies are kind of coming to a head and converging in like a melting pot. Um, like we talked about Karl Marx, we talked about Frederick Nietzsche, um, and now Sigmund Freud, where Freud, essentially brought the meaning of humanity and human identity down, boiled it down to simply being your sexual desire. So this is truly what it means to be human is that the base level um, is just a sexual desire. Um, Now, how do you see this ideology as being uh, detrimental to human flourishing? Um, But maybe even I'll, I'll preface this question. I'll ask this question first. How did that idea that we're seeing in culture now just be, become so accepted. Mm -hmm. It's important to appreciate that all of these ideas take time when, Mm. you know, this didn't happen quickly. It actually happened over a period of time. It's just, you didn't see it until it it was a frog in the kettle. You didn't, you didn't realize until it was boiling, but it's kind of funny or not funny, but 
it's it's enlightening, if you will, or you kind of look back and you go, oh, I should have seen that, right? And now mm-hmm. when you look back at various movies, maybe, or books or various things, you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see it then, but I, but I see it now. And so you have people like we mentioned Nietzsche, who writes in his work, The Gay Science, he gives the, you know, the parable of the madman. And it's in that parable that we get this famous quote, you know, God is dead. And what's interesting, right. though, about that parable is it ends where, so you got this madman that goes to this village. He's like in the, the town square, if you will. And he gives this prophecy, really, of mm-hmm. God is dead and we are completely unhinged. We're, un, we're, we're foundationless. And, right. and life has no meaning or purpose. And the, the people are looking at him with a blank stare and, and the madman has this realization where he's like, I've come too early. They don't, you know, the, he calls it starlight. The, he's like mm-hmm. the starlight of your beliefs, if you will, haven't reached you yet. You know, the, you've got this belief, but its implications haven't landed yet. Right. And I find that, that we've kind of found ourselves in that moment where Nietzsche the starlight has landed. It landed with physicalism and reductionism and the secularism that you and I know. Again, the physical facts fixing all the facts. But we had others that that brought along various ideas, and Freud would be one among many that brought a new starlight of idea, by the way. Yeah, you know, that's mm-hmm. a way we could think about it. And that right. as you were mentioning, where Nietzsche, most of his ideas, you know, they they really didn't take root. But one thing that did was this idea that what it means to be human is fundamentally to be uh, sexual uh, in nature Mm. and our sexuality defines our humanity. Sure. And this has had a profound impact on our culture and that starlight is just now hitting. But if you look back, you see that it's always been there, been there for a long time, but it, it has the implications, uh, have have really landed and this has various dehumanizing components to it so think about this then if your humanity is defined by sexuality well it means then that to be sexual is the most important thing that you could do because mm-hmm. accordingly that's what it means to be human and that's what it, that ultimately it's going to mean to flourish as a human being Right. Is to be sexual. Right. Which brings a lot of clarity to why our culture is sexualizing children. And yeah. in their mind, like that's what it that's what it means to be human. And if yeah. they're gonna flourish, they gotta be sexual. But here's the part though of this dehumanizing story that a lot of people don't fully appreciate. And again, that has this component to it. And it it like think about how single people in our culture today feel. Right. They feel less than. They mm-hmm. they feel less than human because they're not acting out on their their sexuality, right? Well, they're not married, say, or you know, they're they're alone. And now they have this culture that puts all this pressure on them. And I think we gotta be careful that the church doesn't do this as, as well. Absolutely. That you've got to be married or you're less than. Now we could give lots more examples uh, of how this is this is playing out, but the the 
key to all of this, of course, is if your humanity is defined in your sexuality, then the most important thing that you can do in our culture is to find whatever gives you pleasure and to pursue that and to make that the chief end of your life. That's the chief aim of everything that you do. And so Mm -hmm. you have various ways that people find pleasure and pursue from homosexuality to transgender ideologies of all stripes that, that can be imagined. And ultimately, one of the things that's driving that, and this is where Nietzsche and Freud really come into fusion, is that Freud really was just a implication of Nietzschean you know, prophecy, if you will, that right. this secular ideology in that if the light, if our universe is completely unhinged, if God doesn't exist, and as Nietzsche would say, there's no up or down, there's, there's, there's no foundation, there's no right way to live, you know, there's, there's, there's no purpose to any of this. Well, then you should do whatever brings you pleasure. And, right. and that's where that sexuality really comes in. Where you're, where you have people that are saying, okay, I'm just gonna pursue whatever makes me happy, and that, that I'm gonna make that the chief aim of humanity. Right. Well, and I, and I think even you know Paul speaks to that. I'm trying to remember where exactly in one of his letters, but essentially quoting like the philosophers and poets of the day, like eat, drink for tomorrow we die. Like if, if there is no God, if there is no, if Jesus is not God specifically, then we are amongst all people to be pitied. And it's like, then if this, if this moment is all that there is, if this 80 plus years is all that, that it is, you know, on average of how long people live, then man, like throw off restraint. Why not? You know what I mean? Like if there's, if there's nothing beyond just the physical. And so I think that can bring us a lot of hope because like some of these ideas are not just in our day. They're not new. They've been experienced. They've been around and the, the fruit of them has shown up, um, has shown up over history. Um, how do you see the gospel of Jesus really bringing true human flourishing um, in, in light of all these things that we've talked about today. I, I think that's such an important point, Brian, where, where a lot, I don't know that a lot of Christians fully grasp, you know, what, what you're saying there with regards to these kind of ideologies and the fruit of these ideologies. An important question that we should be asking is, well, what leads to human flourishing? What is, what is the best way to live? And you know, our our culture today is basically saying, oh, well, the best way to live is, you know, that extreme individualism, do, do whatever makes you happy. Well, I mean, honestly, do we think that a society is going to flourish in which each person does what they, you know, is going to bring them joy and, and happiness? Of, of course, we don't. We don't believe that. But yet that's the ideology that's, that's being embraced. And mm-hmm. it's this ideology in which now is being particularly acted out sexually, but notice it could get acted out in various other ways. 100%. Right. But currently it's just taking a very sexual tone. Uh, I have no doubt that that's going to change in the future as we've had various ideologies come and go. But so you have people then that are, are trying to find their identity sexually and 
I fear that a lot of Christians kind of buy into that actually. That mm-hmm. in the back of their mind, they're thinking, man, I wish I could act out all of my different sexual fantasies, but because I'm a Christian, God tells me I can't do that. And because God is this God of rules, I better follow his rules so that I make him happy. Right. And and I say that because I was a Christian that once thought that way. Mm-hmm. And that that is a very backwards way of thinking. That is not the gospel and it's not the it is not Christian. Uh the gospel is that God is a God of love. God loves you dearly, and God's desire for you is to experience human flourishing in its fullness. Jesus calls this the abundant life. He wants yes, you to have yeah. that. And by the way, and this is something that we need to say because a lot of Christians get off track in various ways. One could be sexually, another could be financially, and think, oh, the sure. good life is to be found in money. Really? Like, just give that one some thought. Of course not. What does Jesus say is going to lead to the flourishing life? What is the best way to live according to Jesus? And he says it repeatedly because he's asked this question a lot, but he's asked it from a Jewish perspective where the Jews will say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing for me to understand? And Jesus responds to that the same way repeatedly in the gospels. He responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema. Mm -hmm which was a foundational worldview for the Jews. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. This is a Hebraic way of viewing your humanity, that you are mind, body, soul, and strength. And Jesus is saying, love God with everything that it means to be human. And then he adds to it Leviticus 19, and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, wow. Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. You want to know how you should live? You want to know what's going to lead to your flourishing? Love God and love people. Mm. And if you if you derail from that, you can see the pitfalls. If you're going to yeah. make your life all about money, what happens when you don't have money? What happens too when you have all the money you can have and you're not happy? Or yeah. if you're going to make it about sexuality, what happens when you're single? Or maybe you do get married, but your spouse is going to die. Or you're going to yeah. die, you know, and, and you're going to find yourself single again. Is, yeah. is that what, you know, then, then you're going to be in real trouble, right? Because now once, mm-hmm. now once again, you better get married right quick, really quick or find another sexual experience. I mean, th- there you see, even in the homosexuality community, the homosexual community, such a, uh, a lostness of people yeah. that are that are searching one sexual encounter after another and not finding it to satisfy them and going man is this all that life is about i remember you know samuel perez talking about how he came to faith because he walked down the path of homosexuality and realized that all of these sexual encounters he was having was not filling him was not leading to his flourishing and, yeah. and he realized there's something more going on here it reminds me of augustine who said that the mm-hmm. heart of man is restless until it rests in god yeah wow that's so true man Honestly, Andy, I just appreciate your approach to to these topics, venturing into some really difficult areas, but um, bringing clarity. And I would recommend everybody to get their uh, their copy of Reclaimed. Um, I think you you provide just a real easy way 
to understand some of these more difficult ideas that are prevalent in our culture um, while making Jesus a big deal um, and the center of the story, center of our human existence. Uh, how can people stay in touch with you and how can they take part uh, in the work that you're doing with Apologetics Canada? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it was great to, to be with you and to ta- chat about these. And if people want to you know, follow up, uh, with AC. Uh, we have various events that happen throughout the country. Here in British Columbia, we have the Apologize Canada Conference that happens in March. We'd love to to have you out. And if you're a young person, we have leadership summits that that take place. You can take a look at that online. Sign up and and come out or check out uh, you know, one of the various resources that we have available, including the up and coming Can I Trust the Bible? Oh, it's going to be so good, man. I look forward to it. We will make sure uh, that all the all your information is in the show notes for, for everyone to track down. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the Union Podcast. Great to be with you, man. Thanks for listening to the Union Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at theunionmovement.com. For more information, please visit our website, theunionmovement.com, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Union Movement.